there's all these studies that show basically after 55 hours a week, uh, your productivity plummets, mm. you know, there's virtually no difference between somebody as far as productivity between somebody working 55 hours a week and 80 hours a week, almost no difference. Mm. Um, it's just unbelievable. And we waste copious amounts of time on the internet or YouTube or reading news sites or text messaging or, you know, working on multiple different, we have Slack open and email and text messages. And like, we waste so much time through our lack of kind of deep something work. like 3000 hours a year or something I read. Oh, it's crazy, bro. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in how do we work not longer, but, but smarter and harder and more disciplined and how we cut out distractions. What's up guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Drew Trinkle podcast, the place where I'm having conversations with unbelievable people to better understand the bounds of human potential with the goal of living at my best physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And the cool thing about podcasts is I get to share those conversations and ideas with you guys. I was reading Kobe Bryant's book, The Mamba Mentality, and in it he had this really cool excerpt on greatness and what it requires And towards the bottom of the page, he writes, there's a fine balance between obsessing about your craft and being there for your family. It's akin to walking a tightrope. Your legs are shaky and you're trying to find your center. Whenever you lean too far in one direction, you correct your course and end up over-leaning in the other direction. So you correct by leaning the other way again. That's the dance. You can't achieve greatness by walking a straight line. This was just, I guess it spoke so much to me because as an NFL linebacker, husband and a father, it's interesting the dichotomy of culture in the locker room versus in my home and figuring out that balance of directing my mental attention, my full self on the field and then having to come home with a much more gentle, sometimes loving, tender spirit to my wife and to my two kids can be a huge battle. And maybe it's not your family. Maybe it's your personal health. And so you give so much of yourself to your work and your job that you sacrifice maybe your own physical health. And so I love bringing on people who, in my opinion, seem to have figured out that balance in their life to live at their best physically, spiritually, and emotionally and have conversations with them. And, and one of those people I really look up to is, is pastor John Mark Comer, uh, author and lead pastor at Bridgetown church. And he recently wrote this book and it's gotta be one of the more timely reads of the decade called the ruthless elimination of hurry. And in it, John Mark argues that the increasing pace with which we live our lives is having huge consequences on our mental health and overall well-being. And we're, we're unbelievably thankful for John Mark coming on the podcast and sharing some of these ideas. Hope you guys feel equipped. Hope you guys love this conversation with John Mark. Uh, I won't waste any more of our time. Let's get into it. Hey, John Mark, how are you? Hey, Drew, great to see you. So are you just at home? Or are you at uh, at Bridgetown? Where, where do yeah, we I'm find in the, you? Yeah, I'm in the basement of Bridgetown. I don't. We don't have a good podcast room. This look as close as it comes. Just this is the sound guy's room. So there's a little soundproofing in here. It'll help a little bit. I love it. You got the mic though. You got it all set up. No man, it's not even mine. But yes, this like a this is where they they film our lives or they re, they do all the audio for our live stream and stuff on Sundays. So it it works fine. They're not in here today, and it works great. So is that y'all's recording room where you record sermons on Sunday? No, it's just, well, it's where they mix. We do, we do a live stream. So it's like actual small gathering with video, but there's a, this is where they mix it for the internet. So Mm. are you guys, are you guys back in person at all? Yeah, but not, I mean, but just a very small percentage of us. Um, So Mm -hmm. we can right now do, we do three services and we can do maybe, 400 people right now in, in, in through three services. Hopefully that'll go up really soon to larger capacity. Yeah. Um, 
So it's not like the whole church is bad, but at least we have something better than nothing. I love it, man. Where you're in California? Where in California are you? So we're uh, we're like Costa Mesa, but but Orange County. Um, Great. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So it's it's fantastic. Don't have COVID down there. There's no COVID in Orange County, man. It's I know just... no COVID in Orange County. In LA there is, but but not I Orange know. County. It's amazing how it doesn't cross county lines. It's so cool. Uh, it's so interesting how it's how it's affected different like businesses and churches, obviously. But like for our church, we have a smaller church, and so we've just been able to meet outside on the patio, and now we're transitioning to inside. But it's uh, it, it's been an interesting year. Yeah, I know it's so fascinating, and the way it got politicized and moralized was just bizarre. I think if there's anything that we could all agree on, it's like not mm. losing our jobs and dying, but apparently not. <laughs> so it's so I visited Orange County last july and it was so healing for me my mentors down there and i thought it was like the end of western civilization i mean our city mm-hmm. was literally on fire and i went down there i'm like oh no everybody's just happy and having fun and at the beach and it's not the end of western civilization it's just the end of portland so they wanted yeah. to keep us off the beach too they were uh they were doing everything people were it was it was interesting because it's like people just it's our backyard here in orange county and they're like let us go to the beach like please yeah. And there were like fences barricading the beach. And it was like, ah, oh. I don't know if this is true, but my mentor was like more people protested against the beach closures than Black Lives Matter in Orange County. <laughs> I know. I know it was wild. But uh, uh, it's almost like you're the prophet, though, because you write you write this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I anticipate you had no foresight that COVID was coming. No, I was secretly behind it. Me and Bill Gates are conspiring. To you guys are conspiring? Exactly. Yeah, the conspiracy theories are true. They just don't know about me yet. <laughs> he hasn't dropped the news about me. Yet. I haven't seen your name come across the uh, the banners on any of the news so, stations, so you're at least doing a good job of hiding it. Hiding my, hiding my footprints. Dang. So what what is now that this has happened and, and you wrote the book and you've been processing this, Like, what do you think the impact will be on the pace of our lives, like already has been and will be moving forward. How do you think COVID affects that? Honestly, I mean, the, the optimist, I mean, the cynic in me says negligible, yeah. little to no impact um, because it's so to live an unhurried life is such a, like, I mean, you have to swim upstream. It's such a deliberate act of counterformation can't do it alone you have to do it with community you can't do it based on inspiration and, and well-wishing and good motivation and, and even intention you have to have like disciplines and a rule of life or whatever you want to call it to to resist the current of culture and i think so few people have either of that you know so a lot of people love the idea of slowing down will people make radical changes i don't know i mean i know there was a beautiful moment through the first you know, season of COVID at least, where a lot of people whose life wasn't destroyed by COVID, it actually gave them more space than they normally did. And they were locked mm. at home. It gave them more, more space for reflection and contemplation and kind of to take a long, hard look at their life. I know a lot of people made major changes in COVID. And I know a lot of people have said, I'm not coming back to the way it was. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I now have tasted of a different, slower way of life with different levels of success. I now realize how, you know, my job or whatever, my career, like it can just be taken away in a moment. And I want to live mm. for things that aren't as transient, you know? So I think for some of those people, you know, this year they've already made radical changes. A lot of people moved, a lot of people left cities, a lot of people quit jobs, you know, mm-hmm. um, to do something else, something slower, something simpler. That's good. I, I, I think overall, that's a pretty beautiful moment how many of us will actually stay in that in that kind of rhythm of life now that the world is picking up speed again and you know for the first day yesterday there was like really bad traffic in portland you know it's like oh wow certain things i don't miss about you know from pre the pre-covid i don't want to go back to normal traffic is one of them and so i think honestly the world is just going to go back to fast and faster so I think the, the question will be, you know, like all things with spiritual formation, information and inspiration are not enough. You have to go into formation, which is why the first half of my book is like a case against hurry and trying to paint the most compelling picture I can of a different way of life. And the second half is all like practices. It's like very concrete, down to earth, doable ways to habituate this into your body. Otherwise, it's just a kind of aspirational book 
and you walk away mm -hmm. from a book or a podcast thinking, yeah, I should slow down and then nothing really changes. So if what we're actually at is life change, it's got to get habituated into our life, into our relationship. It's got to be a structure built into our life to resist both the digital and the practical pace of life, you know? So what was the, what was the moment in your life where you realized this is, this needed to happen for you? Like, you're like, you know, maybe I felt like I needed to slow down, but I never put the boundaries or the structure or the people in place to actually make me make this happen. What, what got you to the point where you're like, this is bad, man. You know, there are multiple layers to it. There's like, there's an emotional layer to it. Like I, I knew I was not having a nervous breakdown, but I felt like I was, I was nearing a very dangerous place emotionally, you know, mental illness runs in my family and I, I could feel myself. The level of anxiety was acute, you know? So there's a, a, a sharp emotional pain, even deeper. There was a, a sharp spiritual pain. I was feeling increasingly disconnected from God uh, not because I didn't love God, but because honestly, my mind and my body and my nervous system had just sped up to this frenetic pace where I couldn't even sit with God anymore and hear him or experience him or sit under his love. Not because he didn't love me, but because my, my brain and my body were just like revved up to 90 mm. miles per hour. And, you know, there's just too much noise, both in my ears and in my inner, inner mind. There's too much noise to come to stillness before God. There's a relational pain point, you know, just realizing, man, hurry and love are incompatible. I'm a dad of three kids. I'm a husband. I'm, I live in community. I'm a pastor. Um, man, I, I just began to realize that year over year, I was become less loving, not more loving as life and stress and adulthood and responsibility and leadership just piled and piled and piled on my shoulders. And then there was a vocational, this, these are not in order, um, but there's a vocational pain point where I started to realize, man, as you get older, you realize what's, you know, your life is short, it's fleeting. Mm -hmm. Most people will never, you know, very few people will know us after we die. Uh, what, what do I want my contribution to be? What do I feel God put me on this earth to do? What, what am I responsible before God? I think of the parable of the talents I read yesterday, you know, what's the, what are the resources and capacities and giftings and opportunities that God has put into my life that I'm, I'm expected to do something with these. And I will answer to God for what I did with them. And honestly, I just sucked into the vortex of busyness and work and distraction. I, ironically, for all the hours I was working, I was working way too many. I wasn't actually doing, giving enough of my energies to the, to the thing that I feel like I was put on earth to do. So it was kind of this multi-layered Mm. kind of early midlife crisis that finally brought me to this pain point where I'm like, you know, the pain has to be greater than the pain of not changing has to be greater than the pain of changing for most of us to actually make any kind of radical shift in life. I would love to say that I was better yeah. than that, but I was not. But the, even that idea of vocation, because that is a pain point for me, yes. is like, am I doing enough? Like, is my contribution or am I going to come before the creator and be like, you know, you didn't really return what I gave you. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a pressure that causes people to hurry and oh, to yeah. get after it. And it's self-perpetuating because if, if you're so hurried that you don't have time in prayer and in silence and in community to really discern God's call in your life and your identity and what God's called you to do, then you end up saying yes to everything, which means saying yes to nothing and, and spinning your wheels like a hamster and often missing the very thing that God's called you to do. There's a story that I reference in the book, in the, I think it's in the chapter on silence and solitude, where Jesus, after this marathon day of like healing the sick and preaching in the synagogue and casting out demons, the next morning you would expect it to read like he just took the day off, like to get a little Jesus time in, you know? Mm -hmm. But the text reads that he got, this is Mark chapter one, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went out to a solitary place where he prayed. And then next, the disciples come to him. They wake up late and come to him and say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. They're calling you to go back into town, do this, that, and the other. And Jesus basically says no and says, for this reason, I've come to preach the gospel and the other. And he has this remarkable, like, moment of lucidity where he's just so clear on what God's called him to do that he can say no to this great opportunity and go to do the next thing. 
And so there's, there's a link there, I think, that we see in the life of Jesus between slowing down and carving out space for prayer, for silence, for solitude, for reflection, where you really are able to crystallize in your mind, this is who I am and this is what I've called to do. And this is kind of my mandate from heaven, whether that's for, it doesn't have to be like a pastoral thing. That can be your business or your family that your relationship or a, you know, a initiative that you're doing with your job. But this is, this is my mandate. This is what I'm made to do. Once you get that clear, mm-hmm. then you can just start saying no to the thousands of other distractions, opportunities, uh, desires, things that will compete for your life and your body and your attention. But what if you're, what if you're like me and uh, you carve out that time in the morning, I'm getting up at, at 6.30 and my son typically wakes up at 7.30. We've got a, a newborn of of three and a half weeks old. Oh, it's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. But so she had a horrible night's sleep last night. She was up most of the night. My wife and I, we finally get her down around 3.30, 3.45. And my son, my son Elijah gives us an early call at 6 a.m. And so I'm like, I need that hour in the morning to just sit, to meditate, prayer, whatever you want to call it, to read my Bible, to do these things. And I'm up at six and he just wants to sit in my lap. He wants to play and do these things. And so he's not like the, the, maybe like the, maybe he's the disciples coming and banging down, banging down my door. But how do you, how would you respond to a parent or somebody who has a demand uh, on their life? Maybe it's employees, you know, not calling early in the morning. Maybe it's a CEO of a company that, you know, has employees banging down their email, needing questions answered. Like, how do you, how do you deal with those scenarios in your life? Yeah. Oh man. Great question. I mean, first off, I would say that doesn't make you ungodly. That makes you human. This is real life stuff. This is where I have to be careful with the aspirational vision. And then that means real life. Like I fell asleep at three 30 and my son was up at six. Now tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, Mm -hmm. I would definitely separate your relational obligation or relational responsibility, you know, between your two children and employees, however many employees you have, those, those are on different, very different categories, different levels, you know, and with parenting in particular, you know, it's parenting is a great reminder that the point of all of the practices or the spiritual disciplines, such as I'm the same thing. If I miss, I haven't, if I don't have a full hour in the morning for quiet prayer, slowly reading scripture, praying about my day, hearing God's voice, man, the rest of the day, I just feel off. You know what I mean? You feel anxious. You're like anxious, out of sort, harried, hurried. I feel unclear when I'm supposed to do that day. That, that morning hour is the most important part of my day. It's normally the best part of my day. Um, but I'm a parent too. And so I regularly have it interrupted, you know, or I regularly don't get my full night's sleep. And so I'm exhausted in it because my teenager, I have teenagers now. So it's the, uh, we get it on the back end now. We get yep. it like late at night, you know, some big drama thing happens at 10, mm-hmm. 15 at night. And there's this big, you know, whatever. But I remember very well that the, when it was coming on the early morning on the opposite side. And, you know, we, it's a good reminder that all of the practices or spiritual disciplines are means. The end is love. And so we have to really keep our categories clear. The point of spending an hour in the morning in prayer, meditation, whatever, is not so that we feel good through the day. It's so that we can become loving people. And obviously, emotional health is tied to our spiritual capacity for love. So these things are not mutually exclusive. They're actually contingent on each other. But the end, the end is love. That's the whole point. And I think the best way to handle those kind of moments when they're out there is, is the question is it in your control or outside of your control? So I don't know how old your kids are. I don't know your style of parenting. If there are things that are inside your control, then structure your life accordingly. Like we, as soon as our kids were old enough, we bought them a little alarm clock for their room and we taught them before they could read or write the number seven. And they were not allowed to get out of bed until there was a seven on the clock. I love it. You know? And that was so that we knew we could get that morning hour in or whatever. Call that abusive parenting. It was, I think it was good parenting. And they're <laughs> thriving for it, you know? So some like you can control some of those things. But then let's take the things you can't control. Your kid's too young or your kid has the flu or something happens or you don't live a, you have to sleep in the same room as them because you live in a tiny apartment in Manhattan or whatever. Um, then at that point, let your children's interruptions of your life or unplanned kind of 
messing of your schedule. Let that become the spiritual discipline. Ronald Rollheiser has one of the best books out there right now. You can read it in 30 minutes. Every parent should read this book. It's called Domestic Monastery. And it's this, I mean, you can read it in 30 minutes. It's a tiny little book and it's beautiful. And there's much more to it. But the, the basic idea is he just writes about how parenting and family life can be, it can have the same effect on you as living in a monastery. He tells the story mm. about this famous Italian monk that spent 30 years in a hermitage, like all by himself in silence and solitude and prayer, came back to civilization and went to meet his like Italian mother who'd had like six kids or something like that and realized that his mother, after being a busy mom to six children was both more contemplative and more loving than he was as a monk who'd been a hermit for 30 years because something about the way she parented, she let her children become her, her spiritual disciplines. And Rollheiser talks about you know monastic bells, how in a monastery they ring the bells seven times a day to call the monks to prayer. And if you're in a true Benedictine monastery or whatever, if you're writing a letter, you leave off at the word you're at and you go pray. If you're plowing a field, you leave off right in the middle of that trench and you go pray. If you're cutting carrots, you, you leave the carrot half cut and you go pray like those bells because you're trying to order your whole life around God's attention to God's presence. And then he basically flips it and says, every interruption for your child can be your monastic bell. When your child walks in on you, you know, at 6 a.m. as you're waking up, that's the monastic bell. When your child spills the Cheerios on the couch and you have, that's the monastic bell. You can take that as a cue for you to attend to God's presence and receive his invitations to becoming a person of love. And so children can become our spiritual disciplines in that season of life when they're young and we can't tell them to go in their room and not come out till whatever time, you know, they can be our monastic bells. They can, they can be our daily invitations to walk the spiritual journey into becoming people of love. This is uh, this conversation was meant to happen. So the only reason I even, I even know about you is I, I was going to a church here in Orange County called Harvest Bible Chapel with uh, Greg Laurie because it was the only church that would meet during the week. And I play on Sundays, like our games are on Sundays. So I, I can't yeah. obviously go to church with my family on Sunday. But my wife was at a bachelorette back in, back in Indiana for my sister-in-law. And so I'm like, I went with some friends to a, our church here now called Watermark. And he was just giving this fire message about just slowing down and silence mm. and solitude and was using your book oh, as beautiful. a reference to scripture too, uh, as a, uh, as a supplemental material. And I come out of, I come out of the church service and I call my wife and I'm like, Hey babe, like I just got some fire information. Like this was fantastic. We got to order this book, read it together. It's called the ruthless elimination of hurry. And she starts laughing and she goes, that's hilarious. Your mom just sent two of those to our doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> we, so it was already in the works. Amazon was taking care of it and uh, they had been talking about it. My mom had already like read the book and was talking to my wife about it. And so I'm like total like God quidence. And you just mentioned the domestic monastery book. And that was literally a resource our pastor brought up this past weekend. So God ordained this conversation. It was, it was meant to happen. We got to wow. be on the same wavelengths from Portland, Oregon to, to Orange County. This is wild. Oh my God. That is amazing. Yeah. So little side tangent, but I want to hear like what, maybe what your day looked like before you kind of implemented this practice and now like what a work day looks like for you now, like the changes you've made. Well, I mean, yeah, not rocket science there. I mean, a, a couple key, I always hesitate to do this because everybody's life is so different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. I'm an introverted writer teacher you know who has teenage kids that's going to be very different than all different personalities and different callings and careers you yeah. know so one thing that's really important for me is you know i have some pretty strict limits around my phone which i'm not always perfect with but they're they're yep. they're you know i don't always nail what i what i intend to nail um but we practice you know i think andy crouch uses this language but parenting your phone just meaning it sounds like your kids are young when your kids are young at least you know they go to bed before you go to bed and they get up after you get up ideally on a on mm -hmm. the day that you're shooting for and that's just kind of good parenting that gives you some yep. time at the end of the day to breathe 
to connect with your spouse, what to sleep, you know, and then in the morning, it gives you some time to gather yourself, pray, prepare for their wake up. And in the same way, we parent our phones. So they go out, they go to bed, so to speak, at 8.30. We don't use them as alarm clocks. We have old school alarm clocks. We put them in a closet on a charger, out of sight, out of mind. And then um, I try not to even look at my phone until I've done my hour of kind of just prayer, Jesus contemplation, and then at least one hour, ideally two, of kind of deep work. So for me, that would be reading and sermon prep and writing. And so ideally, I've gone, you know, three, four hours from early in the morning until I even look at my phone. And I've gotten some like really good, meaningful work in during the day. And most days, I try not to look at my phone until 11 a.m. So that gives me about a five-hour chunk mm. of just kind of trucking, prayer, reading, sermon prep, writing, big picture kind of well, like, like you know, put the stones in the bucket kind of work that I need to do that day. And after that, I can look at my phone, I can go exercise, I can do meetings and coffees and some of the stuff that doesn't require that same level of mental acuity, that can be the rest of my day. So I implemented the, the hour thing. So we have this sliding barn door that goes from our bedroom to our bathroom and my phone charges in there. I haven't mm. quite convinced my wife to get on the same wavelength with me. Yeah, it took me a while too, but she's not, she's down now, but it took me a while. I love it. So it's still my alarm clock. So maybe I need to get the old fashioned alarm clock, but I've done, I do the hour in the morning where I'd like plug it in over there and, and don't look at it. And it has, it's blown my mind, like how much more peaceful I feel yes. to start the day. Like, I don't feel like I got to check like the market or the oh, news or... Yes, none of that. Oh my gosh, what a horrible way to be. When you, think, when you step back and think about it, and you know, neuro, neuroscientists say that the the moment for your brain right before you fall asleep and when you first wake up are like the the most important neurobiological moments. It's when your brain is most susceptible. It's about to start collating information as you sleep and dream, but right before you fall asleep, and then it's processing that and coming awake and setting not just your mood but your perspective for the day. It's why like. Um, I'm doing this super intensive depth therapy thing this coming fall for 21 days of silence and solitude. Absolute no input, no books, no phone, no nothing. But there's every morning there's an hour and a half of depth therapy. And they st it starts at 6 a.m. because they would say your subconscious is the most open and flexible and you're most in touch with that deep part of yourself first thing in the morning. You know what I mean? So these are important. Is like this just going to be at your house or is, are you going to a facility uh, or somewhere for this? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a program up in, okay. yeah, that I'm doing. It's very intensive. Like I'm on sabbatical. So I, that's why I have the time to do it. I wanted to do it for years. But I just thought that was really interesting. I was like, can, can I, if I have to do an hour and a half of depth therapy, can we do it at like two in the afternoon? Can I like sleep in? And it was like, no, it has to be early. It has to be first thing. Like you wake up and you come because then your, your mind is just in it. There's science behind it that I couldn't explain about how your mind is more open and porous and and available to kind of deep inner parts of your unconscious and your, your soul, as we would say, you know, all that to say, I mean, think about what do most people do right now before they fall asleep, like watch Netflix. Sure. What do they do first in the morning? You know, read Twitter, Instagram, the news, email, text messages. I mean, just a flood of anxiety, anger, division, polarization, distraction. So, man, these are these are very we need to take these two moments, how we end and how we begin evening and morning, as ancient Christians would call them, and they typically called you to prayer both those times, we need to take them very seriously. And that doesn't have to be this heavy, like, you know, up at 4 a.m., fasting and praying for revival thing, though that's great. It can be really restful and beautiful and enjoyable, but those are really important moments in our life, incredibly important. So, bro, you're almost there. All you need to do is just buy a little yeah. alarm clock. It's like 30 bucks, buy an alarm clock, and then just stick that thing away, like in another closet room. It'll yeah. free your whole life up, man. You won't even have to think about it. I you're know. just you're gonna love your life. I need to. I gotta get my wife on that. I don't know if I can convince my wife about the net. So she loves watching an episode of Netflix or whatever. Right when oh, the kid goes God. down, boom! Like we're watching Blacklist. Like she wants yeah. to. Like she just totally. It like is a time for her to just yes. her mind turns off, and it's great. Yeah. That gets us to you know nine or nine 30 and we typically go to bed around 10 or 10 30. Yeah. So I'm like, babe, I kind of want to put that hour that I do in the morning, no phone, no digital, whatever yes. at the end of the day. And she's like, I don't know. That might cut into my show. 
that into my showtime. Exactly. Yeah, they're hard. They're hard. You can't do it all. We're human. We're limited. And and our humanity means both once that we should be gentle with ourselves. So you have a little kid and you're exhausted at the end of the day and you want to watch a 45 minute TV episode. No judgment from this guy at all. What do you what do you guys do at night? Typically, well, our kids are older, so we don't really have that space anymore. You know, I go to bed really at the same time as my kids. Um, You know, we'll put them to bed around 915, 930. And I'll normally try to just this time of year when the weather's better, just sit on our deck for a moment and just kind of collect myself before God, just do a few gratitudes. And normally my mind is so fried. It's not like there's a deep moment of prayer, but try yeah. to have something. And then I'll, yeah, I'll just climb in bed. I read fiction a little bit before I go to sleep and yeah, I go to bed as early as I can so that I can get up and be, I'm, I need like a full eight hours sleep. I'm not a, hey, I'm the same way. I'm, not a hustle I'm like, a, I need sleep and I want to wake up in the morning and I want to go strong all through the day. So I'm trying to do lights out early. Mm. So you, you wrote a book, you got a church. It was, you grew, it was a really, really big church. And then you kind of stepped down. Right. And we're just pastoring a local campus there. You got kids, a husband. It just seems like you're like, you're doing a lot. And so how do you like, we talked about, you know, a little bit at the beginning, at the end of the day, kind of the buns of the sandwich, but like, what does the meat of your day look like? Are you like rhythmically like, putting time aside to take 15 minute breaks? Like, how are you like maneuvering through your day to where you're not just totally spent and can't give anything to your family when you get home? Well, I have a, uh, I have a block schedule that I follow when everything's well. So I have like a ideal week that's mapped out. I have schedule blocks for certain meetings, certain things I do. I say no a lot. And so when I can live into that block schedule, it's, it's very conducive to flourishing. Then things like, you know, I don't know, leading a church through a global pandemic that doesn't last a few weeks, but a year and a half, those type of things happen, <laughs> you know, little mix ups. Um, yeah. So it's not like I have, the, you know, like I have this down and I figured it out and I'm like never stressed and I just come home and I'm unhurried and just whistle while I'm walking home from work and hang with my family. So it's been a really hard year. Last year has just required so much of me as a leader, you know, leading through a crisis and unprecedented times where, I mean, what does it look like to lead a church mm. over the internet where the church can't, the church literally is the gathered people of God is what the word means. And we can't gather. So we can't even gather in small groups. We can't even do house churches, which we could have gladly done, you know? So mm-hmm. very interesting time for us, very hard time, very exhausting time, stretched me beyond my capacity. Certain things I was very good with morning prayer, Sabbath, but my regular kind of healthy rhythms were pretty shot. But to the best of my ability, I, I practice a kind of block schedule. I say no a lot. Um, I, if I can, I build in just walks during my day. I try to just do a couple like 10 minute walks kind yep. of around the block as many meetings as I can. I do is walking me. I did a two hour walking meeting earlier today, which is so good for the body and the spirit. So any meeting that I can take, whether it's over zoom and I can just do audio or in person, any meeting I can do walking, I'll do walking. That's just really therapeutic for me. And, you know, I'm just a big believer and everybody's job is different. Obviously our jobs are very different, but I'm a big believer in, you know, the whole um, activity is not productivity. They're not the same thing. And there's all these studies that basically show there's that, what is it? The Patero principle or whatever it's called that, you know, 20% of your work produces 80% of your results. And so a lot of that, we're just giving heaps of energy to things that really don't affect much of our work. Uh, there's all these studies that show basically after 55 hours a week, uh, your productivity plummets, mm. you know, there's virtually no difference between somebody as far as productivity between somebody working 55 hours a week and 80 hours a week, almost no difference. Mm. Um, it's just unbelievable. And we waste copious amounts of time on the internet or YouTube or reading news sites or text messaging or, you know, working on multiple different, we have Slack open and email and text messages. And like, we waste so much time through our lack of kind of deep something like 3000 hours a year or something I read. Oh, it's crazy, bro. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in how do we work not longer, but, but smarter and harder and more disciplined and how we cut out distraction. Cal Newport's work. If you've read his deep work book, that was, that was a pivotal turning point for me. 
So, and then I, what, one thing I'd love to hear you talk about, Drew, because you would know way more about this than me. I'm, I'm not an athlete, but I'm really intrigued by the concept of load management. Mm. And as I basically understand it, you know, the, the basic kind of in layman's terms is almost like the more important you are to the team, the more seriously you have to take rest and not just resting your body, but your whole person. You have the whole like LeBron James sleeps 12 hours a night yeah. or whatever that, whatever the thing yeah. is. And, you know, I read this interesting book where there was a quote from the, the trainer of, a, of an Olympian cyclist. And he said at the elite level, he's talking about Olympians, he said the difference between the Olympians and the mere professionals is not how hard they work, but how, how, the, how hard they rest. Yeah. He said, once you get to that level, basically everybody's working their tail off. But you he said to. the real difference is how seriously do they take their rest? That's what yeah. makes the. I'd love to hear you riff on that. Does that well, you? Agree? I mean, you disagree? Am I remotely right? It's interesting. So I totally agree. And I'm recently reading Kobe Bryant's book Mamba Mentality, and he kind of takes this old school brute force like approach. He's like, man, right. I get after it every day, like 3 a.m. workouts, and like Ooh. that that worked for him. And I, he did take his recovery very seriously, but I kind of, I think I align more in the camp of like the Tom Brady's, the LeBron James, the Russell Wilson's, the people who expend a lot of resources as a professional into their bodies, be it nutrition, be it rest, uh, be it just mental relaxation and just yeah. disconnecting. Um, and if you look at the guys who stay in the game a really long time, it's typically these guys that have great rest patterns who, wow. You know, it's funny, you, you mentioned that that idea of working smarter, not harder, not confusing activity with achievement. And at Notre Dame, where I went to college, like John Wooden's quote, don't confuse activity with achievement. It hung outside of our locker room every time we walked out to the practice field. And I just think it's something when you talk about hurry, when you talk about saying no, like that idea of saying no, we just finished reading a book in our uh, small group called Essentialism by Greg McCowan. Love that book. I've read it four times. I'm about to say you were saying a lot of stuff and I'm like, man, this sounds like he is just coming yes. from this book. These guys yes. have a lot in common. What he's selling. It's great stuff. Yeah. He's like saying no, saying no, saying no. But I think these guys, um, in terms of load management, they have great rhythms in their life in order to say no to things. Like there's a high demand to have LeBron James talk on your podcast or, you know, do this interview or be at this place at this time. But it seems like, you know, guys like that, guys like Tom Brady who are really doing it well, like they have their few things that are like, that's their purpose. Like that's their calling and everything yes. else kind of falls in line. So for me, it's interesting because, you know, doing a podcast, we, we started this a couple, two, three months ago. And it's interesting because we had our, we just had our second child and I kind of put the brakes on for a month. Like I haven't done a yeah. single episode. This is our first yeah. episode back in like a month. And I'm like, dang, I need to be putting more content out there. Like really trying, if I really want to do something with this beyond football, but I'm like, man, like my life right now, like the most important things are my family, my wife, her health, my daughter's health, my son's health, like my relationship with the father and then pouring like into my teammates and doing that. And it's like, I love doing this podcast. I love having conversations with interesting people and sharing that conversation and technology allows us to do that. But I just had to, to put it on the back burner. And so mm -hmm. I guess that's my idea of load management is like figure out the things that are really, really important and make those count. Like don't spread yourself too thin to where you can't make the things that really matter count. And I don't know, I'm not Tom Brady. I haven't played 21 years, so we'll see how, how my career pans out. But, uh, that's my approach how old, at least. How old are you, Drew? I'm 25. So, yeah, man, that sounds really wise. And I'm, I mean, my experience of you right now, I mean, granted over zoom for 30 minutes, but is wonderful. I mean, you, my experience of you is very unhurried, very calm, very joyful, present to the moment. So I don't know if you're just faking it really good, um, but that's hopefully not. <laughs> and, you know, it's really interesting. You know what that line you said about those that have done well over a long time and have really gone gone the distance, literally as athletes. Yeah. You know, in the New Testament, I just think we all followers of Jesus and people in all sorts of other vocations and jobs, 
have a lot to learn from athletes, you know, which is why I'm not an athlete. I'm just clumsy. It's not how I'm wired, but I, I take you got like this seriously. slick, like hair flow back that makes you look like you could potentially be like a Roger Federer or somebody on, yeah. the, on the tennis yeah, court. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. I'm just going to pretend like I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I played in rock bands, bro. I'm like, a, I, I read books and I used to play in rock band. That's, that's, that's a little bit more my, but I mostly, but I still, I'm going to take exercise seriously and I'm trying to be as active as I possibly can. I, I recognize yeah. that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soul. I'm a whole person. And my body is not just the shell to carry my mind around. It's a part of who I am mm. and stewarding my body is an act of discipleship to Jesus. Offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, your bodies, like the whole, your whole self to God. And, you know, in the new Testament, like for Paul and others, there's a running metaphor of spiritual life and discipleship being like a form of athletics. The early mm. desert fathers and desert mothers and the monks uh, down through church history, they called themselves, they used Greek language, but they called themselves God's athletes. Mm. And they viewed like they approached prayer the way that you approach football and nutrition and workouts in the morning and late, you know, weightlifting. That's how they approached prayer and character formation and becoming a person of love. They were, this is, which is exactly what Paul's saying in the New Testament. So I do think that like we can talk about some like load management from athletics. That's actually like, a really helpful principle for us to how do we apply that to our spiritual life and our calling before God? If that's to be an entrepreneur or a pastor or a mom or whatever. How do we go the distance? How do we still be doing well and thriving, not just when we're 25, but when we're 35, 45, 65, 85? That's the question. And we have a lot to learn from people like you. Well, I hear, I just hear this like resonating principle and like what you're talking about. And it gets back to like the chief thing is love. It's like becoming a person of love. And That's it's like it. the load management thing. It's like, if you're doing things that aren't moving you towards that goal, like you probably should eliminate those from your life. Yes. Probably doesn't make sense. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the Jesus thing, right? I mean, Jesus was so clear at the point in that the ultimate purpose of life is becoming a person of love. So we have to make loving well the definition of spiritual maturity, mm. not, you know, doing great things for God through our business or church, not knowing all sorts of Bible and theology, not writing great books about God. None of that. Like the definition of spiritual maturity is loving well. And I just deeply believe that hurry and love are incompatible. I want to hear your thoughts on technology because we've talked about it a little bit. You having to maneuver with your church over the past year and a half to utilizing this technology. It's obviously this thing that can be good and bad. It's this in incredible thing, the internet that allows us to share conversations like this and hopefully encourage people and to spread messages and sermons and, and do those things. Yeah. But it also can lead to the deterioration of our own souls when we just become so consumed in it. So I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of, of how we're moving as a society in terms of implementing technology into our lives, where you see that moving, maybe, I guess, fences we should put up and, and maybe boundaries you use in your own life for, for technology. You've mentioned obviously your phone and, and sandwiching that, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, you know, technology at its best is a tool yep. and tools are amazing. They enable us to do what we do as humans better. And, you know, um, we could plow a field without a shovel, but it's a lot easier with a shovel and we can plow a field with a shovel, but it's a lot easier with a tractor, you know? And so tools at their best enable human beings to do what human beings do best. But the problem is much of technology is not a tool. What do human beings do best? In your opinion, well, all sorts of things. I, I just mean, what, <laughs> oh, just so, in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't have okay. like a specific answer to that. Okay. I mean, anything from just growing food, you know. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for the bomb to drop. I'm like, it's doing what they do best. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, I was like, oh, I don't know what we do best. What do you yeah. do best? What do you, yeah. I don't know. What do humans do best? Is this an existential question? Yeah. I don't even know what the answer is. Oh, goodness. My, my point is like, tools enable us to do what we what we need to do and and do it really well and that's great but the problem is much of technology is not a tool for us it's a tool for the for <laughs> for some company somewhere else mm. so particularly when you're talking about social media or other venues like other mediums like that like it's so it's so deceptive like when i go on instagram i'm not a customer i'm the product mm. so the customer is who instagram hired i'm sorry who instagram 
you know, sold my their services to them to market to shape the behavior. I'm I'm what they're selling myself, my attention, my inner view of the world, and my behavior. That's the product. So I am of for free offering myself as a product to Instagram and whoever Instagram whoever hires Instagram through marketing ads. Mm in their attempt to steal my attention and shape my behavior and my view of the world. So that's just, that's just what is, that's not even, that's like some opinion or conspiracy theory. That is literally the business model. It's free. I don't pay $10 a month to go on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or anything. I'm the product. So I think at some point, you know, I'm looking at you, we're, we're a thousand miles apart. And we're having a conversation in real time from two. I mean, how would an athlete and a, a author ever come together and have this mm. conversation? What, what an extraordinary gift. So there's something really beautiful here that isn't bad. It enables us to do what, something we care about. I care about spreading this message and writing books. You care about spreading your message and helping people in the space with your platform. It's amazing. But many of these tools are intentionally designed in an exploitative way. They're designed to to exploit us, to distract us, to addict us, to shape our behavior, to manipulate us, to think a certain way, vote a certain way, shop a certain way, spend money a certain way, treat our bodies a certain way, express our sexuality a certain way from powerful people with massive agendas, whether they be mammon-based agendas to just profit off of us, or cultural or moral agendas to move the world in their moral direction, whatever that may be. So we just have to be exceedingly wise and discerning whenever we touch something. The problem is, like, for example, I'm not a, I don't want to get into a controversial topic, but I'm not a gun owner. I don't have a gun. Yep. But in a hypothetical world where I was a gun owner, I would probably not walk around with that gun in my front pocket unlocked for my kids to look at and me to do whatever I, I would probably mm-hmm. keep it under lock and key. And anytime I touched it, I would be extraordinarily careful with it. The problem is I'm holding up a phone. If you're not, if there's no video of this, nobody, <laughs> nobody looks at their phone. Nobody pulls up Instagram and treats it like they're holding a pistol. You know what I mean? But that that's what it is. In fact, I read this fascinating article from the university of Virginia secular study on the difference in between men and women and aggression. It was very not politically correct, but it was this just academic study and basically found, here's my my summary of it, basically concluded that women are just as aggressive as men, but men and women generally tend to display aggression in different ways, most of which we could kind of guess based on stereotypes. Men tend to be more physical, direct, they're more prone to violence. Women, again, this is just stereotypically across the of large population, tend to be more about subtle exclusions of relationship, who's in and who's out, and kind of punishing people through kind of relational, you know, kind of different lines and walls. Again, that's not me moralizing. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just, that's kind of yep. what the data says. Yep. The, the authors of this study was fascinating. So I'm talking about social media and its extremely detrimental impact on young women for all the reasons that you would start to imagine, more so than young men, social media users are overwhelmingly female, far more than, far more women use social media than men um, for all sorts of interesting reasons. And then they concluded this, I I was shocked. They said, if you wanted to destroy an entire generation of adolescent boys, you'd put a gun in their front right pocket. If you wanna destroy an entire generation of adolescent girls, you'd put a smartphone with social media in their front right pocket. I just thought, man, like nobody understands the danger. We, we have ages when you can smoke, ages when you can drive an automobile, ages when you can join the military, ages when you can have a gun. We, but any kid can have a smartphone with full access to the internet. You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. That just shows that our culture has yet to wrestle with the gravity and the seriousness of these tools and has yet to even attempt to put laws or protection around me. So we have to do this for ourselves and for our children in particular. We have to be responsible for God to resist an entire ecosystem and digital apparatus, much of which is doing great things in the world. I'm really grateful that I can text my friend. I can call on the phone. I can FaceTime with sure. my kids. I'm out of town. I connected I'm, I'm, with you via Instagram. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm yeah. so grateful. I have tons of friends in Silicon Valley. I, I bless them, love them. I'm not yeah. slamming them. But man, we this is why we need more Christians in this space. But the user has to be able to, the user has to know how to use the tool at the end of the day. And they have to know when they're being used by the tool. 
Yep. And and then we and we have to be honest about our level of willpower. Do we actually have the level of willpower we think we need to resist the inertia of some of these things? And if the answer is no, then we probably shouldn't have smartphones or be on social media. We should do other things with our lives, you know. And we need an increased imagination for a world where, you know, like I, I'm trying to get off social media right now. We'll see if I can do it or not, but I'm mm. trying to find a way to be a successful author without social media. We'll see if I can figure it out or not. <laughs> but my wife's always joking. We're like, my, my goal is to become the Bill Murray of Christian authors. And what we mean by that, I don't even know anything about Bill Murray, but as I understand, like he's just a legend. As I understand it, he doesn't live in Hollywood. This is my understanding. He doesn't live in Hollywood. He lives like in North Carolina or something where he's from. He doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't have social media and he doesn't, as I understand it, he doesn't have an agent. If you want to hire him for a job, you have to call his landline at his house in Carolina or wherever he's at out intentionally. And he's been able to build this still, you know, wildly successful career, but he's just intentionally said, I'm not going to get sucked into that vortex. He's not even a Christian. So um, as far as I know, so there's something to that. Like maybe we just need a bigger imagination for the kind of life that's possible. Maybe we don't have to do it just because everybody else is doing it. Maybe they're actually better. You know, there's studies that saying if you get off social media, your happiness increases by like 55% within wow. a week. I mean, like maybe we just need a bigger yeah. imagination for what's possible. In our closing minutes, I want to hear, because I think a lot of people would say, this is these are great ideas and I don't want to fall into that vortex but they would probably say, I'm not in that vortex, but they probably are already in that vortex. What, what are some kind of like key identifiers that you would say in your time studying this, like are critical things that are like, yeah, you're probably starting to fall into that vortex and should be careful. What are, what are some things if people notice these things in their life, they might need to take a step back? Oh yeah. I mean, just obvious stuff like stress, uh, exhaustion. Are you tired all the time? Drinking more coffee, falling asleep, you know, in random places at times or whatever. Yep. Irritability is a big one. Are you quick to snap at people? Lack of emotional uh, capacity to connect with people, bond with people. You just can't like sit with people in their pain because you're already too exhausted. Yep. You know, inability to respond to interruptions, uh, uh, confusion and lack of clarity around kind of your identity and calling, like what you're supposed to be and do in the world, slippage and spiritual disciplines, you know, these very like habits that create space for us to be present to God and loving union are often the first things to go. Yep. You know, we feel disconnected from God and our own self, superficiality and relationships. Those, those are some, some pretty good symptoms that you're probably moving too fast through life and need to make some significant changes. I don't want your computer to die on us. So I, I just wanted to thank you for the conversation. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic. And uh, thank you, friend. I'm going to call you friend because I feel like I uh, got to hear a little bit of your story. Super cool. Drew, it's been an honor. I love your, your way of being in the world. I know you're known as an athlete, but what a gift just to be with you for these few moments and see how present you are, how compassionate and kind and it's an honor to meet you. Thank you for having me on. And I hope we get to meet in person someday. Yeah, I'm going to reach out to uh, Deanna or maybe I'll, I'll DM you. I'd love to hear more about practicing the way because it just sounds like yes. you guys are doing such yeah. cool stuff and uh, some stuff I'm I, I'm really interested in. So would be great. We, well, we could definitely do another. I'm doing a whole round of podcasts this fall. I have another book coming out. So cool. if um, I'll, maybe I'll, we can I'll, do round two. Like six weeks of nothing but this. So um, just yeah. hit me up. We'll have another conversation. All right, brother. Appreciate you. All right. Peace to you, Drew. We'll see you. Bye. That's it for this episode. Hey, if you haven't already, we greatly appreciate it. If you'd leave us a review, leave us a rating, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and how we can get better. Until next time, friends. <laughs>